This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Policymakers need to hear from our constituents, and speaking out is important. It's literally the old-fashioned writing a letter, sending an email, sending a tweet now, and speaking out to say these issues really matter to us, and that's what we need is voices that make a difference. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. The U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, or USGLC, works in Washington, D.C. and across the country to strengthen America's civilian-led tools, development, and diplomacy alongside defense. They are working to make America's international affairs programs a keystone of U.S. foreign policy. I spoke with Liz Schreyer, the founder, president, and CEO of USGLC. Together, we discussed her work as a bipartisan purple warrior as well as the work her organization is doing to get local leaders more interested in foreign policy issues from global development to their COVID-19 response. Liz, I'm so excited to talk with you today. You are the founder of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, also known as USGLC, and you have led this coalition since 1995. So would love to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about your organization, but also what inspired and really empowered you to start this effort? Well, Suzanne, first, thank you. I have been an avid listener and a big fan of the Smart Women, Smart Powered podcast. And so it's an honor to join you today in this conversation. The USGLC has been around for over 25 years. And if you think back about 25 years ago, the Cold War had ended. And there was a lot of uncertainty about where America's role in the world was. Some of our fellow Americans believed we had won. And so we could withdraw a bit from the world. And it's time for a peace dividend that we could minimize our investment in things like the State Department, USAID, the Peace Corps. And I even remember members of Congress at that time bragging that they didn't own a passport. And as somebody who had studied international relations and believed in America's role in the world, I was very worried, as were some of my friends, of the danger it meant for America to withdraw from the world. So a few of us got together and started this small, at the time, coalition to give voice to America's role in the world and why investment in smart power, this idea that development and diplomacy along with defense needed to be invested in. So over the years, USGLC has grown to this big tent coalition that the Washington Post actually called a strange bedfellow coalition that we don't, we don't think is so strange, but it is unusual because we bring together really a diverse and inclusive coalition. We span the country. We are very proud that we have Republicans and Democrats, independents, 
We have a big business, small business, everything from big companies like Walmart, Coca-Cola, and local chambers of Congress, NGOs, Save the Children, and CARE, uh, faith-based groups, farmers, veterans, military leaders, community leaders, an advisory committee that's kind of the who's who in foreign policy and national security. And all around the central mission that was really a, a legacy of our former chair of our advisory committee, General Colin Powell, who chaired our group for nearly 16 years. And it's about this idea that America needs to lead, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's really in our economic, our, our health and our security interests. As General Powell used to say, this isn't a, a Republican, a Democrat or independent issue. It's an American interest issue that we should support this 1% of the federal budget because it matters to our national interests and it keeps America safe. So we're really proud to be the educator and the advocate for General Powell's legacy. That's terrific, Liz. And as somebody who has spent her career in national security and some time up on the Hill, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I understand the impetus that led you to this remarkable achievement that you've managed to pull off. I'm wondering if it's gotten harder as we are so polarized today. Bipartisanship used to be what characterized our international and national security efforts. And then that has fallen away over the last few decades. You do have an impressive advisory board, and I'm sure that helps you. But how do you navigate today's polarized world, and, and what do you see in terms of prospects going forward? We certainly live in a hyper-partisan world, and you know this well, Suzanne. I'm impressed with your own background, having served in both a Republican and Democratic administrations, working on both sides of the aisle. And that's kind of part of my DNA, having worked for you know both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill. And this is part of why I think we've been successful. I started on Capitol Hill in a very young age, and I came to Washington, like many of us, believing, you know, we can change the world. And my first project, which really led me to understanding how we should run USGLC, was I was tasked to create the Human Rights Caucus, which is now the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, which is, I think, the largest bipartisan caucus still. But I learned two key lessons that are relevant to your question. The first was there was no email, so you had to get out of your office and meet people face to face, which I still think, even though virtually we do it, is important. But the second relates to your question, which is about coalition building. And the first week, I secured two key members of Congress, which you will remember. One was Henry Hyde, who was at the time the most, probably the most conservative member of Congress. And the second was Barney Frank, who was probably the most liberal member of Congress. And once I got the two of them, it was like the Malcolm Gladwell book, The Tipping Point, because everybody kind of signed up after they saw those two names. And I thought, wow, what, what is this power of coalition building when you get the two of them? And I learned you had to be careful. There were some issues you couldn't get into, but there were a lot of issues that you could find common ground in. And that was a lesson that I took to the USGLC. The support of development and diplomacy of the smart power tool there was a lot of common ground that we could get support on. So even in this hyper-partisan moment, there are two data points that I'll share with you and our listeners. In the last decade, there have been over 50 pieces of legislation that are signed into law that support strengthening development and diplomacy, things like protecting the rights of women and girls, food insecurity, advancing 
economic growth and competitiveness, and I could list many, many more. And I think the reason is because it's common ground. They're relevant and they're in our interest to support them. So in 2017, when the OMB director, Mick Mulvaney at the time, called for cutting one third of our footprint in the world, within two weeks, 250 members of Congress said, no way. We're, we're not going to do that. One conservative member in the Senate said that's dead on arrival. And it wasn't just one party that said no. It was members of the Progressive Caucus and the Freedom Caucus that rejected that call to cut our foreign aid account. And I think it's that there are common ground that Democrats and Republicans can come around when it's in the interest of our country. It's such an important message, I think, for both policy leaders, but for the American public, which does despair of finding any common ground, and certainly in Congress, and that you have been able to identify issues. And I'm sure it is not across the board with respect to international affairs issues where you would find common ground. You have to work to find those issues where there ought to be common ground. And I think that's so important. You know, I've certainly seen it in cybersecurity, another area where we have seen some bipartisan support for some specific aspects, not everything, but specific aspects. Another area that we're looking at to find bipartisan support and are seeing some signs of hope is in civics education for this country. As partisan and divisive, as some aspects of that have become, there is nevertheless a bipartisan support for increasing civic literacy in this country. So it's a question of framing the issue, right, I assume, and finding those specific areas where you can find agreement. So Liz, how does your organization go about doing that on a day-to-day -day basis? What are the kinds of activities that you're undertaking to identify and then promote those issues? I think there's no question it's, it's how you do it. You know, you have to listen to people, listen more, talk less. And that's a lot of what we do. So we go out and over the, you know, the last four years, we, we hold a lot of town hall meetings. I was literally on the road a lot with my colleagues. Now we do this virtually. But over the last year, we hosted over 280 representatives, senators, and congressional candidates from both sides of the aisle. And we had briefings and discussions about the importance of foreign policy, the importance of diplomacy, of global development, global health. And it's not always me um, in these briefings. It's local leaders. It's local CEOs, veterans, farmers, faith leaders, NGOs. And we talk with them and we talk about global health. We talk about economic competitiveness. We talk about what's important to them. Let me give you some examples of some things that we heard. Recently, we had an, a conversation with Senator Jerry Moran. He is from Kansas. A lot of people always say, I, I grew up in the Midwest, so I can use the term of flyover country. And people say, oh, they don't care about foreign policy. Well, let me tell you, they absolutely do. Jerry Moran, Senator Moran, is the chairman of the Global Hunger Caucus. If we were doing it in person, we'd probably have five, 600 people maybe join a conversation with Senator Moran. But because we did it virtually, it was really an interesting conversation. He wanted to talk with his constituents about why it's important 
to care about hunger, both for our values, but also our economic interests. So we had a fantastic hour-long conversation. And what he talked to his constituents about, this is a quote from him, is he talked about how Kansas farmers export $11.6 billion worth of products each year. And that his quote was that feeding the world is how we earn a living in Kansas. Suzanne, there were 20,000 Kansans that tuned into that conversation. So you can, you can do a lot more actually virtually in terms of getting people to tune in. That's how we do it, is that we create platforms for members of Congress, candidates as well, that want to talk about it, to talk with their constituents about why leading globally matters locally. And it really makes a difference, especially to members of Congress, to connect with their constituents on these issues. Reaching out to local leaders and to business leaders is clearly an important part of what you're doing. How hard was it or has it been to convince local leaders and business leaders that these issues around our international affairs and the exercise of our soft, smart power really should matter to them? How hard a sell has that been? It actually isn't that hard at all. Before the pandemic, I actually wrote an open letter to congressional candidates to tackle this issue. And I titled it, What Your Pollsters May Not Know About America and Foreign Policy. I wanted to kind of tackle the assumption that candidates shouldn't only talk about domestic policy. This was before the pandemic, but clearly within the global pandemic, if there's anything we we recognize now is that our health and safety and our economic security is completely linked with the, the rest of the world, that global issues are kitchen table issues when a virus can land on our doorstep in 36 hours. What was interesting is I talked about some of these conversations, Suzanne, that I had heard in my travels. And it wasn't at that time just about global health, but a lot of it was about economic competitiveness. And I talked about many stories I had heard, but one of them is that I recall the conversation of a focus group we had done in Macomb County, Michigan. This was the county that everybody had written about after the 2016 election. And it was a story about a father of four who I was listening to, who was deeply concerned about the growing competition with China. And the father called out China for what he called copying our playbook and the risk of America pulling back. And he literally said, it scares the leap, I I won't say the word, out of me. And what scared him is the competition of China being out there, particularly in emerging markets, and America not being out there. And what strikes me now in my conversations is when I when I talk about the fact that China and Africa's bilateral trade has grown 40% just in the first nine months of last year, I hear it back from business leaders about how concerned they are if America isn't out there in the world. So I don't find it hard at all to have conversations to, quote, convince people that America needs to be engaged in the world. The question is, how should we be engaged? And the tools of diplomacy and development tend to be right on the top of the list when when I start talking to people. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, Liz, because I do think you're right that foreign issues and our issues around our global engagement have gotten more currency and are becoming kitchen table issues, which always means that our members of Congress then 
are paying more attention. They're getting questions in town halls, right, from their constituents on an issue that used to not rank when the top four or five or maybe even 10 issues that people voted about, right, cared about in elections. But I found this with national security post 9-11, that while the good news was that a lot of Americans were paying attention to our security and asking the right questions, that when it gets that political currency, there is a temptation for those running for office to use those issues then in a partisan way. We certainly saw national security issues become more partisan. Do you worry about that? Do you think that's an issue or do you make a distinction with respect to just kind of general global engagement? I worry about everything. (laughs) I'm a worrier, but I'm also optimistic. And here's why. This year, we took that head on. And as part of our work, we launched a new campaign and it's our most significant investment to actually ask us a question and went out with a campaign to ask, what's it worth? to say, what's it worth to ensure a global pandemic never, ever happens again? And to kind of stop the next global crisis, humanitarian crisis, conflict, before it spirals out of control and lands at our feet. And to see if there was a difference, actually, between how partisans answer and what would we get back? And so we asked foreign aid, diplomacy, global health, what's it worth to invest in these things? And we want to see if, you know, our answer healthier lives here at home, safety for those that serve, more customers, would it come back? And I already told you, you know, how we heard it from Senator Moran. We're hearing it from candidates and both sides. They sometimes they say it differently, but we do hear it from candidates. So I'll give you two different examples of that. On global health, so the pandemic, Obviously, here domestically, there's lots of debates. There's debates on, you know, masking and vaccines. But on the global side, we don't hear a difference between Democrats and Republicans. But when we talk to them, we're getting a clear response that they understand that America has to play a role globally, especially when it comes to pandemic preparedness, that they clearly understand the facts that when 10 percent of populations in low-income countries have only received one dose when 4% in Africa is vaccinated, that it's going to come back to haunt us if we don't invest. You go to the conversation we just had about China. There was a colleague of mine who met with candidates on both sides of the aisle in the same race. I won't mention the candidates' names, but the issue of China really animated both candidates in both parties They answered it a little differently. So the Republican candidate says the number one issue for next year, foreign policy-wise, is to combat China. The Democratic candidate also raises China, but talks about China is very concerned about how we need to invest it as it relates to their prowess and their activity in the developing countries. So we see the issues come up and the concern come up. They just may talk about it differently, but they come to the same conclusion. Well, and, and having that kind of discussion and debate in context where Americans are listening is really important just to get folks to be thinking about it and understand the relevance to their life. So sometimes we get the gatekeepers of the staff who says, oh, you don't need to meet. This goes back to my open letter, the candidates. But when we meet with the candidates, especially a lot of veterans who are running, they love talking about these issues. And, you know, it used to be that there was kind of a gender gap, I think. My sense, having come up in the national security world, and Liz, I'm sure you've experienced this too, that a lot of women have not engaged, not felt empowered to engage, certainly in national security conversations. 
And I'm wondering if you're seeing that change and, and how we can accelerate that change if you don't think it's quite where we want it to be. It seems to me that everything you've been saying points toward women increasingly understanding that the issues that they care about, their families, their communities, their country, that they have to understand these issues and engage in these issues. And that those of us who want Americans to be informed have to work hard to empower all of our citizens to feel engaged, whether it's women or people of color or other people who have felt marginalized from some of these conversations. Do you see that? I see it in three different places. First, I mentioned our advisory council. People like former secretaries Condoleezza Rice and Madeleine Albright are two of our most active leaders who I know when I call upon them, they will raise their voice. In Congress, senators and congresswomen are some of the most active voices understanding that the military alone is not going to keep them safe, especially the women that are on the Armed Services Committee in the Senate and the House are the most active supporters in understanding why you need development and diplomacy. And in all the states where we are active across the country, when you look at who are most active with us, it is these women who understand that these kitchen table issues in terms of our health, our economics, our security, it is understanding the connection between these are absolutely kitchen table issues. This year in December, we honored nearly 100 mayors from around the country, Democrats and Republicans, because these issues of international engagement are affecting us at the subnational level where women mayors in particularly are creating global engagement proclamations at the community and city level because they understand they're now at the front lines, not only on the global pandemic, but on global economic and economic empowerment for their communities. And so I think women, as you said, Suzanne, are really understanding these international issues are affecting their families and their economic purse strings of their communities. Yeah. Your work is so inspiring and the stories that you've shared with us are so inspiring. I suspect that you have now energized all of our listeners here. And so I'm wondering if you want to just take a couple minutes to talk about what those who are listening to this and are inspired by it can do to help. Well, we are all over the country and we would love anybody who wants to be part of us to come join us. You can follow us on usglc.org. So much of this is about raising one's voice and speaking out. There is, as you were asking me, we've been talking about this, this belief that citizens don't care about engagement in the world. And as I've been talking about, we're finding just the opposite. But policymakers need to hear from our constituents. And speaking out is important. It's literally the old-fashioned writing a letter, sending an email, sending a tweet now, and speaking out to say these issues really matter to us. And that's what we need is voices that make a difference. Well, Liz, your voice is clearly making a difference, and I want to thank you so much for taking time to share your story with us and, and to help us understand a little bit better about your wonderful organization. And most importantly, I think, on these sort of dreary days, for sharing a point of optimism with us really is encouraging and inspiring, and I, I'm very grateful. Thank you for coming on Smart Women, Smart Power. Suzanne, thank you for having me. It's a wonderful platform, and I'm honored to be a part of it. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, 
Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Hey, Smart Women, Smart Power listeners. My name is Caitlin Johnson, and I host a podcast called Tech Unmanned, where we elevate women's voices in the intersection of emerging technologies and national security policy. We talk about things like artificial intelligence, quantum, biotechnology, and space. Check us out anywhere you listen to podcasts or at csis.org slash techunmanned.